wonderful funeral Faith Baptist Fellowship in Sioux Falls had for Pastor Harvey. I, I was able to attend and I was quite touched by the funeral. Specifically, what really touched my heart with Math was Matthew's eulogy. Specifically, what Matthew shared at the end about Harvey's last day. And I've written about this in this week's From Pulpit and Paper. I would encourage you to read that. And if you're a visitor, uh, I, I'm referring to Harvey Freeze. Harvey Freeze was the pastor, the senior pastor at CBC for about 32 years. And he re has recently gone to be with the Lord. Pastor Harvey serves as a tremendous example of what persevering till the end looks like. He did the Lord's work up until the very end. And uh, I've written about that in this week's From Pulpit and Paper. Please see that if you'd if you think that would be a benefit to you. And I, I didn't get to know Harvey very well. I, I had uh, s several conversations with him, and I got to visit with him in Sioux Falls once when I was there for a pastor's conference. But a lot of my understanding of Harvey has come as other people have shared with me stories. Lindsay and Matthew's, Matthew's eulogy and, and the stories that Lindsay shared at the funeral were very helpful spoken to Lenore and gotten to know Harvey better through her. And one thing I, I'm touched uh, by Harvey about is his, is his love for children. He loved kids. He loved kids both old and young. And he showed that love. And, and one way he showed that love was through food. If you remember Lindsay's, what Lindsay was sharing at the funeral, how Harvey would always go and run and get donuts, and, and, and I think she mentioned banana ice cream milkshakes, and he also loved popcorn. I, I've heard that the reason why we have that popcorn maker in the kitchen was because of Harvey. Harvey loved to connect with kids. He was involved with Awana. He taught worldview on Sunday evenings. And he seemed to be omnipresent as he visited the various activities that youth, or the youth in our church had, the sporting activities. He was a tremendous man. And he had a sweet tooth, and he liked to share little sweets with children. He would hand out candy in his office, I understand. And later, he would hand out fruit snacks. Is this true? This is true. And... and Lenore shared with me that uh, some of the kids who would come and get fruit snacks referred to Pastor Harvey as Pastor Fruit Snacks. Pastor Harvey was able to relate to, to children. And, and the, the children showed their affection for him. And the humor that Pastor Harvey was able to share with these children by referring to Pastor Harvey as Pastor Fruit Snacks. Pastor Harvey was a great man. And, and just to encourage you, what, what Matthew kind of charged those who were at the funeral with, I think it's very important that in the days and weeks and months ahead, that you offer encouragement and comfort to Lenore and to their children, that you pray for Lenore. I think Matthew is right, and the, the way that we honor Harvey now is by caring for his widow. So as you have opportunity, please reach out to Lenore. Pray for her, encourage her, and also other uh, other people within our congregation as well. 
To lose a spouse is a terrible travesty, tragedy. And we need to reach out to encourage. And, and I think that our, our body needs to care for Lenore in light of the faithful ministry that Pastor Harvey has given to this body. I strongly encourage you to reach out to Lenore and encourage her and pray for her. This morning we're transitioning from the series in Advent that we had, that three-week Advent series. And in the new year, next Sunday, we will begin with a new extended study on the topic of prayer. And in prayer, what it is my goal is for that study, I think one way that we can improve as a body is by having more of an emphasis on prayer, both individually but also corporately. And I want to use this series that will begin next week to tackle that issue, that we would improve in our prayer lives, both as individuals and corporately. Prayer is such a central aspect of Christianity. You cannot be a Christian and not pray. Christians are known by their prayer life, so I want to tackle that next. But this morning, I, I'm going to do a unique sermon, one that is very personal. Now, I always try to share from the heart. I always try to share with you how I feel. And I always try to present myself as I really am. I try not to be fake. I try to share with you my burdens and concerns. I try to do that all the time. But this week especially, this morning, I'm going to be sharing a very personal sermon, the one that touches on me, as you can tell by the title of the sermon. I'm going to be talking about the spiritual lesson, what it is that God has taught me in 2020. Praise the Lord, it doesn't have to do with COVID. It does not have to do with COVID. But it does have to do with me. It does have to do with my mistakes and failings and sins. Now, I want you to know that I, I stand up here not to present my strengths to you, but my weaknesses where it is that I failed. I want to speak highly of God, and I want to speak lowly of myself. And the reasons why I want to share this, this personal sermon with you, there, there's three reasons. First, is self-reflection. Self-reflection is very important. This is the Sunday before the new year, and this Sunday provides a wonderful opportunity for me to share with you some reflection, personal reflection, that I have about my life from this past year. And dear friends, I would encourage you to be reflective regarding yourself, regarding this, what it is that God has taught you. As Christians, we need to be reflective. We cannot be apathetic. We need to consistently and constantly ask ourselves the questions of how am I doing in my relationship with God? How am I doing in relationship with my spouse? How am I doing in relationship with my children, with my church, with members in my church, with my family? We need to take stock of our lives often and frequently. And I want to model that to you this morning. And also, the second reason why I want to share this sermon is because I believe the pastor, the elders, serve as examples to the flock. Paul says to the Corinthians, follow me as I follow Christ. 
And pastors, elders, church leaders are supposed to do that. They're supposed to serve as models to the congregation. I think it's very important when pastors fail, when church leaders fail, that they need to recognize those failures, they need to confess those failures, and they need to apologize for those failures. I want to model that. We all need to be consistently apologizing in life. We all fail. We all sin. Apologizing needs to be something that we do often. I want to model that for you. And the third reason is because I share with you thoughts pertaining to confession. The Bible encourages Christians to confess to other Christians their sins. James 5.16 says this, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Confession is something that we need to do regularly. We need to regularly, first and foremost, confess our sins to God. That needs to be a daily, hourly thing that we do. But also, there are occasions when Christians should confess their sins to other Christians. And I seek to be faithful to what Scripture teaches about this. Now, I do not look for you to absolve me of my sins. I'm not asking you to forgive me of my sins. If I have sinned against you, I do. I apologize to you. But ultimately, what it is that I need comes from God alone. You cannot offer me what I truly need. God has forgiven me of my sins. And I ask in that light that you will forgive me of my wrongdoing. But I do not seek from you forgiveness, ultimate forgiveness, that comes from God alone. We cannot offer each other divine forgiveness. So I do not seek for you to absolve me. My sins have been absolved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And also, I, I do not confess these sins to you ultimately that you would like me more. The fear of man is a trap and a snare. And I share, these, I share this confession with you not necessarily that you'll like me more. Now, I do want you to like me. I do want to be liked. I want you to love me. But ultimately, I come to you out of a fear for God, obedience to Him. And I pray that that would engender in you an affection for me. I do not share this confession, this confession so that ultimately you will like me more. I do it out of a fear of God. So for the specifics of my confession, what am I talking about? How have I failed the church? How have I sinned against my God? Well, I believe that I have failed in this way. I have been prone towards being harsh. Stated another way, I have not been inclined towards being gentle. Stated another way, I have corrected when I should have encouraged. I have chastised when I should have supported. I have been confrontational when I should have been forbearing. Those have been my tendencies. 
And these tendencies have shown up in many different areas of my life. So first and foremost, my home, the way I relate to my wife and to my children. The way I relate to my children, I have been prone towards yelling. I have been prone towards being, towards having a temper that is quickly set off. I have been prone towards not being long-suffering. I have been prone towards acting out towards my children in the way I talk. Being harsh. Raising my voice. Yelling towards my children. Towards my wife, I have been prone towards not being sympathetic, not being understanding, correcting when I should encourage, criticizing when I should compliment. These tendencies have gone outside my home to the way I've related to people within the church, personal conversations I've had. And also my tone from the pulpit. I believe my tone has been too harsh at times. Whenever I should be encouraging, sometimes I correct. So that has been my sinful tendency and, and why have I acted this way? There are many reasons. I think first and foremost, I'm a sinner. I think also my temperament, I, I, I tend to be more of a less easygoing person. The Lord's teaching me to be more of that, but by temperament, I, I can be confrontational. I can be disagreeable. My early childhood experiences... When I was a child and I was engaged in athletics, sometimes the most helpful things that, that, that my coaches would say to me would be to criticize me. And I tended to respond well to that. I would go down in the dumps, but after time I would improve. And I guess that I thought that work, what worked for me in childhood also works in the ministry. Also in the PhD program I came from, the professors could be quite harsh sometimes. And I thought that that's what everybody found useful. So I was ignorant. But the reason, what, the reason that I want to focus on this morning, I think the main reason why I've been like this, why I've been prone towards being harsh, why I've been prone towards being not gentle, I believe it is rooted in my false understanding of who God is. Prior to this year, I've had a view of God that I've understood Him like a pie chart. And this pie chart of God is 50% harshness and sternness. Excuse me, 50% harshness and sternness. 50% love and grace. I've had this view of God that God is kind of equally both. And so my harshness would flow out of my view of God. I thought God's dealings with mankind could be 50% of the time harsh and 50% of the time loving and forgiving. And I've come to see that that understanding of God is wrong. The pie chart, never, never try to understand God on the basis of a pie chart. That's one error. 
But what I want to focus on is the 50-50. That is incorrect. And what, who helped me see this was an author by the name of Dan, Dane Ortland and other brothers in this context. Other, other Christians in this context have helped me see that. I, people have told me that I, ha, I am prone towards harshness for a long time. But as, as you know, we can be hard-headed. And it has taken seeing how my consequences impact other, the lives of Christians. It has taken me to see that, to really come to terms with this bad inclination I have. And also this book, this book, it's called Gentle and Lowly. I've referenced it before. I've recommended it before. Gentle and Lowly. I would strongly recommend you get that book. That book has been, outside of Scripture itself, one of the most impactful books I've ever read. Buy that book. Read that book. And what Dane Ortland helped me see, he helped me see a specific text in which God speaks of himself different than how I thought he was. And for the remainder of our time together, what I want to do is I want to jump into this text. It's Exodus 34. We'll start in verse 6. Let's go ahead and turn there. I want to jump in this text, and I want to show you from this text who God is. It is not just me who has a false view of God. It is not just me who acts out towards other people in light of a faulty view of God. We all do this. This spiritual lesson that God has taught me is also applicable to you, maybe in a different way, but nonetheless, it's still applicable. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to see who God is from this passage. And then I want to apply who God is and the grace and mercy that he gives us to you so that you can share that grace with other people. Exodus 34, beginning in verse 6. The Lord passed before him. The him here is Moses. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. To explain the context a little bit, Moses, God is giving this message to Moses as Moses is on Mount Sinai to receive from God the second set of Ten Commandments. Earlier in Exodus, God had given the Ten Commandments to Moses. Moses took them down to give them to the people of Israel, but what he saw was Israel's unrighteousness. And so he threw these tablets, these stone tablets, down on the ground, and he shattered the Ten Commandments. 
Moses goes back up to Mount Sinai to receive again the Ten Commandments. But God shares something with Moses here that is different. What we have here in these two passages, Exodus 34, 6 through 7, what we have here is one of the central, if not the central, revelation of who God is in the Old Testament. All Scripture is inspired by God. But not all Scripture is equally important. Some passages of Scripture have theological importance that other passages do not have. And this passage here is of tremendous theological importance. I was reading one commentator this week, and they made a comparison between Exodus 34, 6 through 8, what God says of himself here, and the incarnation in the New Testament. The incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ is one of the climaxes of revelation in salvation history. We ought to see what God says here to Moses in the same way. Not in, excuse me, not in the same way, in a similar way. God here is a preacher. God is preaching to Moses. God has something to say to Moses about God himself. He gives a sermon. God reveals his character in this passage. And this passage reverberates and is repeated throughout the Old Testament. This passage either is exactly repeated or it is, it is alluded to in a number of Old Testament passages. Listen to these passages. It occurs in Numbers 14.8, Nehemiah 9.17, Nehemiah 9.31, Nehemiah 13.22, Psalm 5.8, 69.14, 86.5, 86.15, Psalm 103.8, Psalm 145.8, Isaiah 63.7, Jonah 4.2, Joel 2.13, and Nahum 1.3. After God reveals this to Moses, this becomes a central facet of who God is. The important question that we need to ask ourselves regularly who is God? This passage gives us tremendous answer to that question. Who is God? Well, I want us to see what it is that God does not say in this passage. As I've said on a number of occasions, when we read Scripture, when we study Scripture, it is very helpful in order to understand the meaning of a passage to see what it is that is not said. What it is, what is it, what is it that God does not say about himself? So we're going to ask this question in order to understand what it is that God does say. So looking at verse 6, this is what the passage does not say. The passage does not say, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, quick to anger and slow to show steadfast love and faithfulness. The passage does not say that. The passage also does not say, the Lord, the Lord, a God, a God merciful and gracious, just as quick to become angry as he is to show steadfast love and faithfulness. The passage does not say that. 
The passage also does not say this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in, in anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The passage does not say that. What I want us to see from this passage is that there is an asymmetry between God's anger and His grace. God does not treat these two attributes that He has, His righteousness and anger, and His love and His mercy. God does not treat them symmetrically. God does not treat them 50-50. The main idea here is that God is slow to anger, but that He abounds in steadfast love. The emphasis is in the abounding. God is not rich in anger. God is rich in love and mercy. Now, anger still occurs here. And I want to be very clear. My view of God's anger and wrath has not changed. I still believe in a doctrine of hell. I still believe that at the end of time, there will be a tremendous judgment upon the ungodly. I still wholeheartedly believe that. And you see that in this passage. Look at verse 7. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who but God will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I still believe that. I believe that with all of my heart. I believe that one day there will be a judgment in which God will punish the ungodly. I totally believe that. My change in perspective, though, has been to see the emphasis of this passage. The emphasis of this passage. What it is that God is most inclined to do is not to judge, to not be harsh. Yes, God will judge one day. We have to hold on to that belief. That is a central tenet of biblical Christianity. One day God will judge. But how does he arrive at that? How does God arrive at judgment? Verse 6 specifies that God arrives at judgment slowly. Yes, God will judge the world one day. But that is not his inclination. God must be provoked to anger. When God does judge the world, God's judgment upon the world will show forth his patience and mercy. Second Peter says that God delays the coming of Christ so that more people will repent. God does become angry. But it takes great provocation. Anger is not God's inclination. Harshness is not what God is inclined to do. 
What is he inclined to do? What is his inclination? What is his knee-jerk reaction? It's not to become angry. It's not to be harsh. It is to show love and forgiveness. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This passage does not say that God is ab abounds in anger. This passage does not say that God is slow to show mercy and grace. He is slow to become angry. But what it is that he is inclined to do is to show grace. You do not have to provoke God to show you mercy. God does not have to be provoked to show kindness and grace. But he does have to be provoked to show forth his anger. There is not symmetry here between God's anger and his mercy. While God does and will show forth his anger, he only does so when provoked. What comes first is for him to forgive. God's greatest desire for you in your sin is not to punish you, but for you to bring your sins to him for forgiveness and mercy. Dane Ortland, he closes like this. This is such a helpful quote. The Lord is slow to anger. He doesn't have his finger on the trigger of wrath and anger. It takes much accumulated provoking to draw out his anger. Unlike us, who are often emotional dams ready to break forth, God can put up with a lot. This is why the Old Testament speaks of God being provoked to anger by his people dozens of times. Listen to this. But not once are we told that God is provoked to love or provoked to mercy. His anger requires provocation. His mercy doesn't. His mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. We tend to think that divine anger is pent up, spring-loaded, and that divine mercy is slow to build. The Bible teaches that it is just the opposite. In God, divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. This is who God is. This is the God who we serve and worship. But what happens with us is that we have faulty views of God. I had a faulty view, and you might as well. We're inclined to get the question of who is God wrongly. Can you turn down my mic just a bit? Thank you. Now what I want to do is I want to turn the tables. I have shown you from my life how God has used this passage in my life. I've been vulnerable to you. Now what I ask is that in that vulnerability, you would allow me to poke and prod in your heart. That you would be open to receiving the grace of God. 
that your defenses would be down and that you would hear who God is and how who he is ought to shape how you relate to other people. So for some application. First, for your own view of God. The first question is, what is your view of God? This is such an important question. Who is God to you? Do you believe, like me, that God is kind of, or like how I used to believe, that God is kind of 50-50 wrath and 50-50 love? God is 50% this and 50% that. Don't believe that. See from this passage that God is inclined towards showing forgiveness and grace. His knee-jerk reaction is not anger, but love and mercy. But maybe in a different way, your, your view of God might be false. Let, let, me, let, me, let me go through some, some thoughts. If you've had these types of thoughts, your view of God does not match this passage, okay? So, so my question to you is, have you had these thoughts? Maybe you've not verbalized them, but they resided deep in your heart. If you've had these thoughts, what we want to do is we want to apply this passage to you. God is not willing and ready to forgive me of my sins. My sins are too great for God to forgive. When I fall into sin, God is probably not ready to forgive me. I probably need to do something good for God to take me back. When I fall into sin, I need to earn God's favor back before he will accept me. God's love for me is contingent upon me not doing that same sin again. If I do this same sin again, God will probably not forgive me. I'm too sinful for God to accept me. God could never love me in light of my lifestyle. Have you had those thoughts? Those thoughts, like mine, are incorrect. That is not who God is. We want to correct those thoughts. What, what, what happens is that as we fall into sin and as we lead lives that do not glorify God, these lies keep us in sin. These lies keep us from the God who wants us to return to Him for forgiveness and grace. It is the devil who wants us to believe these things. It is not God. What God wants you to do is to come to Him. He is not inclined towards being angry with you. If you come to God, He will never forsake you nor reject you. That's who God is. Never doubt the love of God. Never doubt His faithfulness. Never doubt His commitment to you. If you are in Christ, God loves you with a love that extends throughout all the earth. His love endures forever. That's who God is. We want to believe what Scripture teaches. 
And as, we align, as the Spirit aligns our thoughts with who God is, what we see is we see the magnificence of grace. And grace, when it comes to you, if you truly know grace, it will change you. The power of God is irresistible. If you truly see who God is, your life will be changed. And that love must transform you to treating other people in a certain way. The way we show forth our love for God in this world is in the way that we treat others. So now transitioning to application in regards to how you treat other people. Ephesians 5.1 says that we are to be imitators of God. Pretty straightforward. You are to act towards other people the way that God acts towards you. You are to extend to other people the same grace that God has extended towards you. So I want to ask some questions to see how you're doing. Explore two topics, anger and forgiveness. So with reference to anger, to see how you're doing, to see if your life is in conformity with who God is in your treatment of other people, here are some questions. Are you quick-tempered? Are you quick-tempered? Does it take you a very long time and a lot of mistreatment to become angry? Or do you fly off the rails very easily? Does yelling come easy for you? Are you easily irritated by other people? Are you gentle? Or are you combustible? Just at the slightest provocation, you just explode with anger. What comes more natural for you? Forgiving others or becoming angry? Would you rather forgive someone when they have wronged you? Or would you rather let them know all the ways they hurt you and not forgive them until they know how badly they've treated you? Chances are these questions will lead you to do some soul searching. To act towards other people like God acts towards us is not natural. We are inclined to become angry and bitter. But what we must see in the scriptures is that God, that is not who God is to you. Dear friend, towards other people, you must be slow to anger, quick to show patience, quick to show forbearance, quick to overlook, quick to move on, not yelling, not constantly being offended, but being loving, being kind. Now with forgiveness, some more questions. Are you ready and willing to forgive others? Are you ready and willing to forgive other people? Or are you bitter 
and resentful? Do you hold on to past grievances? Or are you quick to let them go? Do you keep a list of wrongdoings to bring up when others, when others hurt you? Or do you easily let go of issues when others have hurt you? What brings you greater joy? Criticizing others? Or forgiving them for their sins and mistakes? Are you able to overlook other people's sins and mistakes? Or do critical comments come from you very easily and very quickly? Do you give the benefit of the doubt? Are you willing, ready, and desiring to forgive those who have hurt you? Or do you wish that they would never talk to you again? Dear friends, th this is just some application for this passage. This passage, who God is, how he relates to you, and the impact of that and how you relate to other people is the answer to all of our problems. The God who has saved us, the God who has saved you, is one of infinite mercy and compassion to you. God has separated you from your sins as far as the east is from the west. Exactly when you ask for it, God gives you infinite forgiveness for all your sins, past, present, and future. Yes, God can and will become angry. But it takes God great provocation to get there. God is love. And the salvation that he offers us is one in which we have not earned. Therefore, we must act towards other people in the way that God has acted towards us. We must be gentle. We must be kind. We must encourage more than we correct. We must not yell. We must not lose our tempers. And when we have been hurt, when other people have treated us wrongly, our inclination must be to forgive. We cannot hold on to years and years and decades of resentment. We must move on. We must forgive. We must treat others the way that God has treated us. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for your revelation of who you are. You are a God who is unimaginably loving and kind. Your steadfast love endures forever. You are slow to anger and quick to show forgiveness and grace. You forbear and are inclined to forgive our sins, not because of us, 
but because of your mercy and grace. God, I pray that we would rightfully view you in light of who you are. That we would see your love and grace. We would see your love and grace towards us. And that love and grace would transform our lives. And that because we have been recipients of such tremendous grace, we would be able to model and show forth that grace to other people. God, I pray against anger. I pray against harshness. Father, I pray for patience and peace and mercy and a forgiving attitude. God, I pray that we as individuals and as a church, Father, that this love and grace that you bestow upon us would transform how we relate to other people. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who has died for our sins and showed us how to live this way. And I pray for his power and deliverance from our sins in our lives and in our church. Pray these things in the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.